Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. Hello and welcome back to another edition of Return to the Word. Bibles in hand and open to chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians. Now if you were to compare 1 Thessalonians with 2 Thessalonians, we would say that Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians to comfort the church, and we would say that Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians to correct them. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we start in verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other. So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints, and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. Therefore we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness in the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Many years ago, back in the 1800s, Horace Gray, before he became a Supreme Court justice, while he was still serving in a lower court, Horace Gray had a man standing before him in his court, and this man had escaped conviction on a small technicality. So he told the man, quote, I know that you are guilty, and you know it, and I wish you to remember that one day you will stand before a better and wiser judge, and that there you will be dealt with according to justice and not according to law. Well, Gray had tried to warn the man that he may have gotten away with it this time, but one day this man would have to give an account to God. Some time went by, and this same man had broken into a home. And while in the process of stealing from this home, the owners returned. The man was surprised, so he fled out the back door with as much as he could. He climbed over a nine-foot wall, dropped down the other side, and it was then that he realized he had just broken in to the grounds of the city jail. Well, sometimes justice comes right away and sometimes justice must wait until the day when the men and women of the world stand before the judge of all men. Justice is the subject at hand. Now, if you remember from our study of 1 Thessalonians, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, well, they were in Corinth. And this would be during Paul's second missionary journey. The year would be around 51 AD. The best guess would be was that this letter was written about two to three months after 1 Thessalonians. And it seems that Paul had sent the first letter to the church at Thessalonica, but word had made its way back to Paul about some of what was going on at Thessalonica. The report brought good news and bad news. 
The good news was that the church was continuing to grow in their love and faith. But the bad news is that some dangerous teachings about the day of the Lord had crept into the body of believers. If you think back to 1 Thessalonians, Paul had taught in his first letter that Jesus Christ would return and his return could happen at any time. And if you remember, Paul taught them that the day of the Lord would come as a thief in the night. Now, the bottom line is that some in the church completely misunderstood what Paul had been teaching them, leaving them to wonder if the day of the Lord had already begun. They thought that when Paul was writing about the return of Christ at the rapture, that he was referring to the second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation, meaning that the tribulation was upon them. Think of the devastating effect this would have had on the church if the day of the Lord had come. That meant they missed the rapture. That meant they should start expecting the wrath of the Lamb to be poured out on the world. So what we have before us is Paul's effort to clear up the mess, to clear up the confusion at Thessalonica, and to let them know that the return of Christ that he was talking about was not at the end of the tribulation, but instead the glorious return of Jesus Christ for his church. And before Paul could clear up the confusion about the end times, the first issue in chapter 1 is the subject of justice. Because Paul sought to teach the church that even though they continued to suffer at the hands of those who opposed the Christian faith, the Lord himself would bring perfect justice when he returns to this earth to judge the men and women of the world. We start with verses 1 and 2 where we read, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Silvanus is just another form of Silas. Silvanus is the proper Roman name. Luke always refers to him as Silas. Paul always refers to him as Silvanus. Much of this greeting is the same as the greeting of the first letter. And if you're using the King James or the New King James, there is only one main difference from the greeting of 1 Thessalonians. In the first letter, Paul wrote to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father. Here he writes to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father. 1 Thessalonians, God the Father, 2 Thessalonians, God, our Father. The difference is subtle, but it makes a little stronger focus on God's relationship with his people. It is the bond that we have to all who are in Christ that God is our Father. Christ taught this in Matthew 6, 9, when he said, In this manner, therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The greeting here in verse 2 is a classic greeting from the Apostle Paul. Grace and peace come from God the Father. Grace and peace come from the Lord Jesus Christ. If you understand the wording used in this verse, then you understand that this is another clear reference in the Word of God which points to the deity of Jesus Christ. This was an accepted part of the faith of the early church, that Jesus, God the Son, was considered as equal with God the Father. All of our blessings come to us from God the Father, whom we have come to know through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I find it fitting that Paul starts this discussion about justice by reminding the church of the grace and peace of God. Grace is God giving us the opposite of what we deserve. Grace is God giving us eternal life and all of the wonderful blessings we have in Christ instead of what we truly deserve, God's judgment and eternal separation from him. Now, peace is another beautiful word, peace, because we are no longer enemies of God. Those with faith in the death and resurrection of Christ have peace with God through the death of Christ. And we can experience the peace of God in our lives as Christ works in us. Paul is teaching the church Christians can be at peace 
even in the midst of trials, even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of times when things are going just absolutely wrong. We are saved by the grace of God and we should live in his grace. Our Christian lives should be lived out, walking by faith, living in his grace and at peace in him. Paul begins the core of this letter by starting out with his gratitude for this church. Take another look at verse three. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other. Paul and his group felt that it was their obligation to thank God for this church. The word for bound literally means to owe. It carries the idea of owing something to someone. In other words, Paul and his group believed that they owed God the debt of gratitude for the great work he was doing in his church at Thessalonica. Now, back in 1 Thessalonians, Paul had urged them to grow in their faith and increase in their love. And Paul could now rejoice because their faith was growing and there was genuine love for one another in the body of Christ. Now, this is typical of Paul. Paul started every epistle except for Galatians. Paul started the epistles with giving thanks for the progress of their faith. I love the focus. I love the emphasis on love, peace, faith, and grace. Notice again the wording, we are bound to give thanks, or we must give thanks. After all the hard times, after everything that Paul had seen in the mission field, what a joyful testimony it was to hear about these brothers and sisters in Christ. Notice the reason Paul and his team had such joy. Pay attention to the wording in the second half of verse 3, because your faith grows exceedingly. It was faith that was growing beyond measure. It was faith that was growing beyond their expectations. Think about what it means to grow in your faith as a Christian. Too often today, maturity in the faith is defined as outward behavior, and the mental lists come out that a mature Christian should do these things, or a mature Christian should not do these things. Listen, it's not about outward behavior. Faith should be defined as trust. To grow in your faith means to trust God more consistently as you grow older in Christ. This was men and women living with confidence in the Lord, living with absolute trust in the Lord. The storms of persecution they had endured had not destroyed their faith. It had strengthened it. The second reason for the gratitude was because Paul could testify the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other. Some of the wording used in this statement meant an overflowing love, like a flood. This was love that was like a river that just kept rising and just kept overflowing its banks more and more. Faith was about their relationship or trust in God. Love was about their relationship with other people. Our faith in Christ should demonstrate itself in love towards others. Faith was increasing. Love was increasing. This is the type of church and the type of Christians you want to be around. You know, we live in a day and age where love abounds for self, but in this church, it was love for one another within the body of Christ. Paul and his group were thankful that the afflictions they faced at Thessalonica had not undermined their faith, nor had they dried up the springs of their love. Take a look at verse 4. So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. What an amazing statement. The new Christians at Thessalonica were having an effect on Paul, Silas, and Timothy. The faith and patience in the midst of the persecution that the church of Thessalonica demonstrated became the praise report that filled the land and became an example for all those in Christ. When you witness men and women 
suffering severe persecution for their faith in Christ, living in such a way that they continue to be patient, they continue to have faith and demonstrate the love of Christ. It's pretty obvious you're witnessing a group of men and women who have learned to truly walk by faith, who have truly learned to trust Christ and his word. And the same would be true if you see someone going through tough times, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job, or just difficult times in life. And yet they continue to be patient. They continue to demonstrate the love and patience of Christ. It means faith is at work. Remember, these believers continue to face an onslaught of persecution for the sole reason that these men and women claim saving faith in Jesus Christ. They didn't run from the persecution. They looked to Christ. They looked to his grace to help them endure. But notice the teaching that comes out of this, starting in verse 5, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer. Now work your way through this and think of what Paul was saying. Paul is connecting back to verse 4, telling the church at Thessalonica that their enduring faith in Christ, their patience while suffering for the gospel, is evidence that the righteous judgment of God is still in the future. In other words, God's justice has not taken place yet. The call was for the church to continue on, to endure the persecution. The very fact that they had made it through everything they had and yet still have faith, still have the love of Christ, still manifesting the fruit of the Spirit was the evidence that new life had been imparted to them, that God was sustaining them, and God would not allow their unjust sufferings to go without reward. The judgment of God in this verse looks forward to the day of Christ's judgment of men. His judgment is righteous. His judgment is impartial. God himself was the one allowing them to go through the suffering. And they could rest assured that the very reason that God was allowing their suffering for the faith is found in the middle of the verse where Paul tells them that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. Now, this does not mean that Paul was telling them that if they suffered for their faith, they would somehow earn the right to salvation. But rather, the idea is how these brothers and sisters in the faith were standing up in the face of opposition It demonstrated time and again that God was strengthening them. God was indwelling them and giving them the ability to continue on, demonstrating for everyone that they belong to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Listen carefully, because we need to be clear about this. I believe the scriptures teach that you cannot always tell whether someone is saved by their outward works, because faith is of the heart. Christians grow at different speeds, and there's simply no way that you can know what is going on in someone else's heart. Outward works do not indicate whether or not someone is saved. A lost person can do a lot of good things, great things, for all the wrong reasons. And a lack of outward works do not tell us that someone is not saved. How can you know whether someone is having a bad day, a bad week, or maybe even a bad year? How can you know if there is faith within the heart? Yet at the same time, Paul tells us in Galatians 5 that the fruit of the Spirit is evident. The fruit of the Spirit is obvious. Meaning, here's the point. It's not our job to go around and make judgments about who is saved and who is not based solely on outward behavior. But we can recognize a testimony of faith, a testimony of trust. We can recognize when someone truly makes a stand for Jesus Christ, which is what we have here. Let us be clear that it is the grace of God. It is faith alone in Christ alone that qualifies a person for heaven. But suffering persecution, enduring physical suffering for the faith, 
exposes God's grace at work in the life of a believer. Now, before we move on, notice the clear reference to the kingdom of God. This is not the Reformed teaching that the kingdom is just Christ ruling and reigning in your heart. This is the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. Every believer will return to earth with Christ at his second coming and enter his kingdom that he will establish on earth. But only those who are faithful in this life will reign with him. This is the teaching of Luke 19. And I believe this is the teaching of Paul in 2 Timothy 2, where he said, If we endure, we shall also reign with him. Every believer will be in the kingdom, but not every believer will have the same responsibility. A big motivation to live for Christ are the future rewards at the judgment seat of Christ and the responsibilities that will be given in the kingdom of Christ. But when Christ comes back for the church at the rapture, not every believer in Christ is going to be found living in a manner that is worthy of his kingdom. Not every believer is going to be living blameless when he comes. And for this church at Thessalonica, even their suffering was making them stronger in their faith. The church did not abandon Christ because the redemption they had in Christ was manifested in how they lived for everyone to see. And that is the lesson. Our testimony should be clear. It absolutely should be. But as long as men have free will in this age, we will have believers with inconsistent testimonies. And Paul was calling for the church to look forward to the glorious future we will have in Christ. The coming kingdom of Christ is worth suffering for. Suffering for Christ is not punishment. Suffering for Christ should be an honor. Picking up our text with verse 6 where we read, Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The principle behind these verses that helps us understand what Paul is getting at is that God is just. God will balance the scales of justice. This is the idea behind this first statement in verse 6 where Paul writes, It is a righteous thing with God. This is an undisputed fact. God is just. God is righteous. The future judgment of God will be righteous. Why? Because God himself is righteous. Being righteous is part of who he is. If we understand the righteous judgment of God, this should help us as we face the unjust situations of this world. This is what Paul wanted for the church at Thessalonica. These new believers were suffering simply for following the Lord. It would leave many to wonder, why was God allowing his people to suffer? Paul answered, we build our faith on the eternal and righteous God. Now, this actually goes back right to our study at the end of 1 Thessalonians, where we saw that we don't have the right to seek revenge on our enemies. We don't have the right to try to judge them or inflict justice upon them. That is the work of the Lord. And Paul felt the church needed to be reminded that God is not on our clock. He is much more patient than we will ever be. With God, you don't have to worry about partiality. With God, you don't have to worry about him being vindictive or unjust. God will one day settle the score with all men. God will hand out justice to the men of this world. And this is where Paul moves the discussion to in the second part of verse 6, where Paul told the church that God would repay with tribulation those who would trouble you. Notice the word repay. The idea in this text is that these people have it coming. They've been handing out trouble on this world, and that is just what they will get back from the Lord. 
they will receive the full compensation for all the wicked acts that they have done. Nothing escapes the eyes of the Lord. We can rest assured that God will deal out justice, matching punishment for sin. Verse 7 through verse 10 is referring to the second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation. This will take place when Christ returns to the earth in judgment, when Christ will punish those who do not know Christ, those who do not obey the gospel. Matthew 25 teaches us that at that time there will be a separation of the sheep and the goats. Believers will go into the kingdom. The king of kings will say to them, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And to those who survived the tribulation but did not obey the gospel of Christ, he will say, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Not only will those who persecute us receive judgment from God, but Paul records in the first part of verse 7 that God will give you who are troubled rest with us. Paul uses an interesting word for rest. The word carries the idea of relaxing the string on a bow. The thought is of relaxing the pressure, letting the tension off. And the image Paul gives to us in this passage is that these brothers and sisters in Christ were continually stretched out with all the pressure that they faced because of the persecution. But the day would come when they would be able to rest from the present suffering. The day would come when they'd be able to rest from the afflictions of the lost. That time would come, Paul tells the church, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. My first thought is that rest will come when the rapture of the church takes place. And my second thought is that rest will come when we die, when we go to be with the Lord. But neither of these is what Paul lists out. Instead, Paul refers to the second coming of Christ. Paul refers to the time of Christ's return at the end of the tribulation. And I think the reason for this is that, yes, when we die or when the rapture happens, we will go to be with Christ. But those still alive in this world who reject the Lord and persecute the church will not face their judgment from God until the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But rest assured, the day will come when the veil is pulled back and the righteous judge will return to judge the nations. He will return with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on the enemies of Christ. The idea of the word vengeance is not of some petty God who is vindictive, but of a holy God who brings justice. This is God giving the lost men and women what they deserve, nothing more and nothing less. The punishment for the lost is in line with the truth that God is holy. His standard is absolute righteousness. This is also another proof that Jesus is God the Son. In the Old Testament, vengeance is the right of Jehovah. Here, vengeance is the right of Jesus Christ. Proving the words of John 5.22 true, where Jesus said, For the Father judges no one but has committed all judgment to the Son. Notice the twofold description given by Paul of the lost those who do not know God, and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. When men and women reject the gospel, it is disobedience, plain and simple. But I think we actually have a little bit of distinction in this verse between two groups of people. Every lost person does not know God, but not every lost person will be confronted with the gospel of Christ. Romans 1 makes it clear to us that some reject the general revelation of God and deny the existence of God. Listen to what Romans 1 teaches us. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, 
who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. They reject the truth of God which can be seen in his creation. These men and women may never actually be confronted with the gospel of Christ because they have already rejected the general revelation of God, proving that because their hearts are so hard, they would have never responded to the gospel. Either way, all of the lost, whether they reject a general revelation of God or the gospel of Christ, they will share the same fate because whether they know it or not at the time, they have rejected the Lord. But here in verse 8, Paul mentions both groups, those who never heard the gospel and those who disobeyed or rejected the gospel. Now, verse 9 gives us a better understanding of their punishment, where Paul records, These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. If you speed, you pay the fine. If you park where you shouldn't, you get a parking ticket. If you reject the Lord, if you reject the gospel of Christ, this is the penalty that you will pay. John the Baptist said in John chapter 3, verse 36, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Those without faith in Christ will suffer everlasting destruction. Now, don't get hung up on the word destruction here. The word used can be translated ruin which might be a better translation, that they will face everlasting ruin. But the rest of the verse gives us the meaning of this everlasting ruin. Eternal life is life with Christ. Eternal ruin is separation from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. There will be no second chances. There will be no appeals. Christ's judgment will be final. This brings to mind the somber words of Matthew 7, where Jesus himself said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Heaven is the very presence of God, and hell is the complete opposite. The lost will be shut out from the glory of the power of God. The word of God seems clear that the worst part of hell will be the eternal separation from God. Mankind was created for the purpose of fellowship with the Lord. Those in heaven will fulfill that purpose. Those in hell will never be able to fulfill the purpose for which they were first given life. Hell will be the reality of never being able to quench the agony of not fulfilling what each of us has been created for. Verse 10 in our text records, When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. Keep in mind that we are talking about the second coming of Christ. According to Revelation 19, when Christ returns, we will be with him. Church-age believers who are raptured will return with Christ at the second coming. Understand that the second coming of Christ will be a day of great glory and vindication for the Lord. And Paul was telling this church they would take part in it because they believe the testimony of the gospel of Christ. Notice this description, to be glorified in his saints. 
meaning that the believers in Christ in our resurrected and glorified bodies, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, His glory will be reflected in us. And He will be admired by all those who believe, meaning that we will marvel, we will admire the Lord for all that He has done for us. Take a look at how Paul wraps this section up, starting in verse 11. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness in the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was trying to motivate the church to a life of obedience. Paul wanted every man and every woman to live in light of the glorious day when we will be reunited with Christ. And Paul felt that a very effective way of calling them to live for our future with Christ was to pray for them. And Paul begins by telling the church, therefore, in light of everything just discussed, in light of the coming glorification of Christ with his saints, Paul and his group of men were in constant prayer for this church. Their constant attention was on helping them advance their walk with Christ. The content of the prayers was first that our God would count you worthy of this calling. No one deserves the grace of God. No one deserves salvation in Christ. But now in Christ, we should live in a way that is worthy of the honor that we have of life in Christ. Paul was calling them to action. Paul was calling for them to live in a manner that was worthy of the calling of God, worthy of the call to redemption to which they had responded. But more than just this, this is talking about worthy to rule in the coming kingdom of Christ. You see, this all ties back to what we looked at with verse 5 that how you walk in your faith right now, how you serve Christ now, determines your position in the kingdom of God. What you do with the grace of God that has been given to you determines the extent to which you will be able to serve Christ in the kingdom of Christ. The second part of this prayer was that God would fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness in the work of faith with power. This is the work of God. The prayer is that God would bring to completion his goodness and work of faith with power in their lives. So that, and here comes the purpose of it all, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him. Our purpose is to glorify Christ, but Christ will also glorify us because we will be his glory. And all of this is according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's pretty hard to even comprehend all that awaits us as we share our redemption in Christ for all eternity. As I read this section of scripture, I think about an Iranian Christian named Mehdi Dabai. Mehdi was born into a Muslim family in Iran, but at the age of 15, he came to faith in Jesus Christ. Eventually, he was arrested by the Iranian government, and for nine years, he was kept in prison. During his imprisonment, another pastor cared for Mehdi's two young sons. And then finally, after nine years in prison, Mehdi presented his written defense of his faith in Jesus Christ before the Iranian Court of Justice. After that trial, he was condemned to die, but because of worldwide pressure, the Iranian government released him. Just five months later, after he was released, he was abducted, murdered, and left hanging on a tree in a city park. As I read this passage, I think about his children because they are forced to grow up without a father simply because of the injustice of this world and simply because the men and women of the world hate the Lord Jesus Christ. This man's children will never see their father vindicated in this life, but we have God's assurance that one day the gavel will fall, one day 
Jesus will be unveiled in his glory, and when that happens, God will bring his justice to the world. Most of the social injustices that we witness in this world pale in comparison with some of the atrocities that take place around the world for our brothers and sisters in Christ. If you and I could spend a week living openly as followers of Jesus Christ in places such as Somalia, parts of India, the Sudan, North Korea, Saudi Arabia, then we would begin to get a better understanding of what injustice looks like. It is so much more than the little things that we face in this life, and I think it is to our shame that we wallow in our petty problems. I think it is to our shame that so often we do not even think of or pray for those in Christ around the world who do not have the freedom that we do. Praise God, one day soon our brothers and sisters in Christ who suffer for their faith will have rest and eternal peace in Christ. Live for the day when God rewards those in Christ and know that if you should suffer for the faith, God will settle things through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our responsibility is patience, faith, love, and continuing to live to glorify Christ. True justice can only come from the Lord. This is part of who He is. Look forward to the day when God hands out His justice to the world because we can know that God's eternal justice is fair. Over in the epistle of Jude, we read, To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Before I sign off, just a note to our online listeners that the Apple app is now ready to go. You can get it by simply searching for Return to the Word. Android listeners, on the Google Play Store, you have to search for Return to the Word Radio. Or you can get either one by going to our webpage, returntotheword.com. And then under Listener Updates, you'll see a link for both. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in and studying the Word of God with us. If you like what you've heard, please tell others. Help us to spread the message of God's amazing grace. We'll see you next time. And I do pray that you will continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.